I'm Deidre. And I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you a million murders. Hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> yes, yes. We are doing, um, I'm going to do some Kentucky hauntings. Kentucky. Yes, yes. So we'll see if anyone knows these. I feel like I, I tried. This was something that Sarah and I did on Screaming Sugar and I feel like back then even I was trying to find stories that people don't know about. Because, yeah. like, everybody knows about Waverly Hills. Everybody, you know, knows about Bobby Mackey's music world. If you don't, you do now because Morbid just put out an episode. Mm-hmm. What will be, like, either a couple of weeks ago at this point, whenever you listen to it. Um, so, yeah. So, um, my first one is Wilson's Ferry Landing. So this story comes from a book by William Montell about ghosts ghosts across Kentucky. The story is titled, Was It the Ghost of a Woman or That of a Dog? Okay. In the balmy late summer evening of 1947, a group of Orangeboro teens were on their way to a party. They were laughing and having a good time. When their laughter immediately stopped, they froze in their tracks as an apparition of a tall woman in white clothes rose up before them. One of the boys in this vehicle passed out and had to be carried to a neighbor's house. Deidre. What? That's De- I was just saying Oh, Deidre. Like, I was like, what? And I was looking for... <laughs> You're the passed out passenger. Yep, Deidre. Or, was it passenger or driver? Uh, it just says one of the boys in the vehicle. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, hopefully not. If it was the driver, wake up, wake up. We gotta get out of here. I'll kick him out and get in the driver's seat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just leave him there. We're out of here. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so this guy passed out, had to be carried to a neighbor's house. Word got around, and people thought it was crazy, but too real to have been faked. Two brothers, Harold and Harry Sapp, decided to check things out by visiting the old ferry landing. As they approached the site, one of the busiest sections in that region, Harold looked back over his shoulder, and he could see a luminous feminine figure in a flowing white long-sleeved gown. I said white twice. It was like white long-sleeved white gown. White long-sleeved gown just standing there in the middle of the road. Oof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's out in Orangeboro somewhere, and... uh or somewhere out there, um, but I'm missing a part of the story. Oh, I don't know why. The dog, the dog. Yeah, right? the dog. Yeah. So, because it says a woman or a dog. Well, other people would go out there and they would find where they would see a white dog out there as well. Like they'd see the woman and then they'd see the dog. So he may have titled that because, you know, there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um or that's just hard to companion. Yeah. Yeah. Or like maybe it's just, but they're like never seen together. It's one or the other. And sometimes they're like after each other. So it's kind of oh, okay. interesting. Yeah. So that was Wilson's Ferry Landing. And this next one is Farmer's Road Ghost. This is another story from the book as well. Um, I think all of these will be 
in the book. Um, but some of them I just knew. So I, you know, did them. Okay. Many times while I was in high school, I heard this story about a ghost that could be seen along this country road near Bardstown in Nelson County. I never believed it until I saw the ghost for myself last summer. The legend goes that a farmer was crossing this road and was hit by a car. He died on the spot. Well, last summer, I was driving back from Bardstown late one evening on this particular road as I... As... As I rounded a curve, I saw a man in denim-colored overalls and a straw hat standing there in the road. I know. But I was still positive that I would hit him. I closed my eyes and waited for the impact, but it never happened. The car stopped, and I got out to look around, but nobody was near or on the road. I went back to the car and got a flashlight out. So, I mean, he's doing his due diligence. Bless him. He was like, I know I hit somebody. Yeah, and now I can't find them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so flashlight out of the glove compartment. He's using the flashlight. Says I looked on both sides of the road, but still couldn't find anything. I even looked for footprints in the dirt on the side of the road, but didn't find any. I know without a doubt, if that had been a real person, I would have hit and probably killed them. Yeah. Now then, I too tell people about the ghost of this man on this backcountry road. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. I love backcountry roads. <laughs> they get a little, a little scary, wary at night, though. In the dark. Now I'm just playing. But anyway, okay. So the next one is the Mandy tree. This is one of my favorites. Um, this story is also in the book, so I took some from the book and you know just around mm-hmm. because I already know about the Mandy tree, but I needed the facts. So Mandy Holloman who died years ago, was still keeping silent watch over the countryside she loved so well, barely outside the western city limits of Madisonville. Mm -hmm. The year was 1915. Mandy led an average life as a wife and mother. One day, Mandy prepared breakfast for her husband, Ed, like she probably did every day, before he went to work at one of the mines in the area. A few minutes after Ed left, his son, Mandy's stepson, who also worked in the same mine, was seen leaving the house in a hurry. The other children were already sent to the spring to get some water. The stepson was most likely the last person to see Mandy alive. Mm -hmm. And when the children returned from the spring, they found Mandy nude, lying on the floor, wrapped in a quilt. Two feet away was a pool of blood, but there was no blood found on the quilt, nor was there a bullet hole through it. But the bullet had entered her right side near the armpit. So she's nude on the floor wrapped in a quilt. And then there's a pool of blood away from her, but no blood on the quilt. Bullet in the armpit, no hole in the quilt. Right. So it's like she was shot outside of the quilt. Moved. Moved to the quilt. But how was there not any blood on the quilt? You know what I mean? Like, what's... I don't know. So, anyway, it's really weird. Um, And Mandy's neighbors never reported hearing any sort of commotion that morning or knew of any reason that Mandy would complete suicide. Uh Um, So, her stepson would later die in a mine at Clay, Kentucky, not long after her mysterious death. Mandy was well-liked and respected by other African-Americans of the community. So, I didn't know this was an African-American woman. 
Like, I didn't know Mandy was black because I've been hearing the story forever. And nobody mentioned, which I mean, not that you have to. Like, Mandy, a black woman. Like, no, you don't have to do that. But I just didn't know. And so I'm like, oh, wow. This is like an African-American ghost story. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, she was very well liked by the community and she was always working in her garden or planting shrubs. And before she died, she had recently planted a white oak sapling. People in the area started to notice something incredible. As the years went by, the white oak sapling grew into a beautiful tree and it resembled Mandy's profile and seemed to be looking up towards the sky. Locals believed there are two reasons why this could have happened. One theory is that Mandy's blood was spilled under the tree. The other is that the clothes Mandy was wearing the morning of her death were buried by the tree. The property had been sold to a man named H.V. Taylor by the time this happened. Around this time, he and his family were in fear of losing the house as they were unable to make the mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were in like a really hard place. And Madeline... HV, HV's wife prayed for a change to help them stay in their home. Word started to spread about the Mandy tree. So like when the kids were still there, the Mandy tree wasn't the Mandy tree. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it didn't happen until these people moved in. Um, and word got around and thousands came from all around to view the tree. Wow. Mm-hmm. And HV had the idea to charge 10 cents for a printed picture with a few words telling the story of the tree along with refreshments. This helped the family manage their mortgage payments and keep their home. So, you know, it all worked out. And the tree was even published in Life magazine. And copies of this magazine have been passed down for generations in their family. At some point, the profile eventually vanished from the tree and the famous oak was destroyed by lightning. In the 1980s, a man was remodeling the home and found an old 22 caliber rifle hidden in a wall around a fireplace. This could potentially be the murder weapon that killed Mandy, and the rifle was later given to Mandy's great-nephew, who still lived in Madisonville. And as far as I can tell, the gun was never tested, and her death was still ruled a suicide. Wow. Yeah, her death was ruled a suicide. Um, shot herself in the armpit bled out got naked wrapped herself because the blood had to have been dry enough to where that's why it didn't get on the quilt or there was some on the quilt and they just didn't investigate and do their job correctly because they were like oh suicide down to the bone Suicide. suicide yep i don't know yeah like it's really weird and now i'm like justice for mandy yeah she was straight up murdered and nobody cared. Everybody was like, oh, she killed herself. How? How you, how you shoot yourself in the armpit? Bury your... Be, strip down. Do all this. Bury your clothes. Hide the rifle. Yeah. No. So anyway, that's the story of the Mandy tree. I'm sorry about my voice, y'all, because it's struggling today. So the next story is the conjured chest, which is like... This is really crazy. And this is my last one. Um, But it's a long one. So, you know, I feel like it's long enough. So 
This last story is first described in a letter from Virginia Carrie Hudson Cleveland to her daughter, Virginia Maine. Okay, so this is going to be a little hard to follow for a little bit, but just bear with me. Okay. So Cleveland's grandmother, which is told the story, told her the story as a child. Mm-hmm. So like this woman is telling her daughter, but she heard it from her grandmother, her daughter's great grandmother. Yeah. So the conjured chest, the conjured test, the conjured chest was likely made around 1830, possibly in Meade County, Kentucky, where the Graham family lived. Hmm. Yes. So it all starts with Jeremiah Graham. He's making preparations for his firstborn, which included a chest that was hand-carved and made by a slave on his plantation named Remus. Jeremiah was not satisfied with the chest and beat Remus until he died from his injuries. Like, just straight up, off the top, with the most disrespectful stuff. Like, okay, so the other slaves weren't having this. They're like, you're not going to beat Remus so and yeah. kill him and just think everything's fine. So they took dried owl blood and sprinkled it into the chest and they put a curse on it. This is like, this is going to be like Oculus. Like, you know, an Oculus when she's talking about all the people who've had the mirror and all this stuff. Yep. That's where we're about to head. <laughs> so everyone buckle up. Buckle up, buttercup. So... The chest was then moved to the child's nursery, and every time something was put in the chest, a tragedy happened. Like, you could not put anything in the chest. Without something happening. Yep. Okay. Eighteen people are thought to have had some kind of bad luck after coming in contact with the chest. Jeremiah Graham, his child, who the chest was made for, died in infancy. Mm. I know, that's really sad. Jeremiah's twin brother, Jonathan, had a son. The son's clothes were placed in the chest, and he was stabbed by his body servant on his 21st birthday. Oh, goodness. Yep. Jeremiah and Jonathan's sister-in-law, Amanda Winchell Graham, wife of Moses Graham, put the chest in the attic after this happened. Okay. Mm -hmm. John Ryan, a recent immigrant from Ireland, eloped with Catherine Winchell, Amanda Winchell Graham arranged for them to live on land belonging to the Grahams and gave them the chest, which they both used. Farm life left them poor and made Catherine ill. John planned to go to New Orleans to find work and was killed in an accident. Mm. Okay, so then Catherine Winchell Ryan died from her illness. So that's four. The fifth one is Louise Gregory a child of Eliza Ryan and John David Gregory, who died at around age 10 years old. Mm. Yeah, so I think Eliza is the daughter of John Ryan and Catherine Winchell Ryan, if I'm not mistaken. Um. So, anyway. So, yeah, Louise Gregory, a child of Eliza Ryan, and John David Gregory died around 10 years old. Eliza and John... David Gregory's only son, Ernest Gregory, married Stella Stonecipher. Stella was put Stella put her wedding clothes in this chest, and the couple wed in 1895. Stella died within two years of their wedding. 
It's terrible. I know. Listen, this is all this is. Okay, number seven. Mabel Louise Whitehead, a relative to the Gregory family, came to live with Eliza and John David in 1884. Mabel married Wilbur Harlan in 1897. Wilbur who? Wilbur Harlan. That's my papa's name. Yeah. And my puppy. Yes. So, in 1901, Mabel and Wilbur had a baby named Chester. Mm-hmm. Whose clothes went into the chest. Chester died at two weeks old. I know. I know. It's a lot of kids. Like, it's terrible. Now, number eight. Wilbur Harland. uh, Wilbur Harland's clothes were placed in the chest. And Wilbur died in 1905. So, like, four years after his son passed away. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Number nine, John David Gregory's nephew, Emmett, was the son of John David's sister, Lucy B. Gregory. Lucy hid knitted gloves and a scarf in the chest for her son's Christmas gift. Emmett worked on the railroad, or for the railroad, and one evening in December of 1909, Emmett got off the train and fell 30 feet through a trestle. Oh, my word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew. So, number 10, Nellie Gregory, daughter of Eliza and John David Gregory, married Fred Fraze in August of 1905. Nellie had placed her wedding clothes in the chest, and Fred deserted Nellie. She never got married to him. Yep. Okay, so number 11, when Eliza Gregory's husband, John David, died in 1908, Eliza rearranged her house and moved the chest into her room. Eliza soon took her own life and died on April 4th, 1914. It's sad. It's a lot of deaths. I know. We're only halfway through. Um, so, number 12, the chest then moved to Louisville um, with Eliza and John David Gregory's granddaughter, Virginia Carey Hudson Cleveland, which is the mom from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Virginia put her first child's baby clothes in the chest. The baby was born prematurely and died the same day on August 8th, 1915. 13, Virginia and Kirtley Cleveland went on to have two daughters, the second being Anne Carey Cleveland. Anne's clothing was placed in the chest, and Anne was struck with polio around 1929. Although she recovered, Anne endured related symptoms all her life. 14, Virginia Kirtley, Virginia and Kirtley Cleveland's oldest daughter, Virginia Hudson Cleveland. They all like naming their kid Virginia, so it like, gets really confusing. Yeah. Um, whose wedding clothes had been placed in the chest wilbur brister married virginia hudson cleveland in 1943 and in december of 1944 wilbur was rushed to a hospital for an appendectomy he died december 9th 1944 from an overdose of ether Hmm. yeah so okay number 15 the cleveland's neighbor herbert h sunny moore jr put his hunting clothes in the chest, and Moore was killed in a gun accident at the home of the neighbors on April 5th, 1946. Number 16, Richard, Virginia and Kirtley's son, put his clothes in the chest, and less than a week later, he was stabbed through the hand at school. Like, what is happening? So have you, if you noticed, it's kind of stayed with this Virginia Cleveland mm-hmm. woman for a minute. Yeah. You know, so she's, it's, you know, everything's happened. Even her neighbor done got, you know, like, okay. So after all this happened, 
Virginia Cleveland was at the end of her rope. She asked Sally, a maid who had worked a maid who had worked for Virginia most of her life, if she knew how to break a conjure. Sally told her she needed a dead owl brought unasked by a friend. Then she had to take the leaves of a willow tree planted by a friend and boil them for one day in sight of the owl. Next, she was to put the liquid in a jug and bury it with the handle facing east under a flowering bush. Virginia and Sally completed the steps to break the curse, and the only way to tell if the curse had been broken would be if either Sally or Virginia died before all the leaves fell off the bush in the fall. So Sally would end up dying that fall. She died? Yeah. I know. Sally died, the maid. Aww. Yep. Um, and so that makes her the 18th person to have died in relation to the chest, including Remus, the man who built this cursed chest. Um, and to this day, some owl feathers remain in the top drawer to keep the curse at bay. The chest would be passed down to Virginia Carey Hudson, Maine, who eventually donated the chest to the Kentucky Historical Society in 1976. The chest's the chest's reputation extended beyond Kentucky, and the chest was even shipped to Las Vegas in 2015 for the show Deadly Possessions on the Travel Channel starring Zach Baggins, or Baggins, oh. Zach Baggins. In, every epi- in this episode, Zach interviews Virginia Maine's daughter, Beverly Kinsley, and mm-hmm. asks her about why her mother donated the chest to the Historical Society, and she said, I don't think she would turn it loose. I mean, imagine putting it out on the curb, knowing that someone might put items in it and then die. She felt that it needed to be preserved, but to be kept away from innocent people in a place that would make it very clear that it wasn't to be used. Hmm. So. I like that one. I do, too. It's, I mean, it's very weird. It's very strange. But those are my Kentucky hauntings. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, that is it, y'all. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at ameliamurders at gmail.com. You can jump on our Instagram and look at the pictures of the people, places, or things. And you can go to our Facebook group or our Facebook page. Interact there if you'd like. And we try to update you on those when we can. If we, if we don't forget because we're forgetful these days yes but yeah all right well i think that's everything thank you all for tuning in and we hope you come back for a million oh i jumped in so quick a A million million more more. Bye. bye